Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. We'll be discussing his article, Against Deaccessioning Rules, which is forthcoming in the Creighton Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Brian, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's great to be on, and I'm a you know big fan. I think you're doing great work, and uh, I'm excited to see people like you doing some cool podcasting in the business and corporate law space. Well, thank you. I, I'm a, a fan of Ipsa Dixit too, and it's always nice to have a crossover episode, uh, so to speak. Brian, as you note in the paper, art museums own art. Art, as I understand it, has a fairly lucrative private market. Art museums also sometimes need money. So just a basic question, can art museums sell the art that they own when they need money? And if not, why? (laughs) Well, so a deceptively complicated question, actually. So the answer is both yes, no, and it depends all, all at the same time. And um, maybe one way to sort of illustrate why this is complicated, I could provide a little bit of historical background because I think it's helpful in understanding why this is as complicated a question as, as it is. So, you know, museums have existed for a long time in various forms over, you know, centuries, if not longer, right? But the modern museum is really a function of the late 19th century and the sort of bourgeoisification of Western culture. And, you know, you start to see the modern museum emerge in the late 19th century and the kind of the aggregation of these large collections in connection with the growth of the commercial art market. Now, throughout that period of time, you know, art museums, added material to their collection and removed material from their collection kind of whenever the people governing the museum thought it was the appropriate thing to do. So museums refer to adding something to a collection as accessioning and removing something from a collection as deaccessioning. And of course, you know, museums accession works in order to grow the collection and have something to show. And they deaccession because, you know, collections very quickly get too large to be manageable. You know, most, like many really large museums today ultimately exhibit, you know, less than, you know, two, three, four percent of the collection of the museums. And most of what they own stays in the basement or in storage somewhere and, and no one can really see it. You know, plus museums often will acquire or have over a long period of time or receive as a gift something that, you know, might not be high quality or might be damaged or might just not be appropriate for that particular museum's collection. And so they, you know, they want to remove it from the collection because they don't need it. And it's taking up space that could be occupied by something else. And so they engage in this process called deaccessioning. Well, you know, for a very long period of time for, you know, most of the kind of first three quarters of the, the 20th century, 
there was really no oversight or attention paid to this process. Museums bought and sold works whenever they felt like it was appropriate. But there was kind of a a quote-unquote scandal that occurred in 1960s, 1970s, when uh, specifically, well, sort of initially, when the Metropolitan Museum of Art sold a bunch of works that had been donated to the museum as a part of a large collection from from a donor in order to purchase other works that curators of the museum were more interested in owning. So initially, this sort of purchase was a big deal, and everyone was like, wow, what a coup. They bought such great work. And they're like, well, where'd the money come from? They're like, oh, they sold all this other stuff that also people thought was interesting and valuable and worth having. And also the person who donated didn't expect that the museum was going to turn around and sell it to buy something else. And a lot of people in the moment felt like, oh, well, that's kind of an inappropriate thing for a museum to be doing. I mean, should museums really be buying and selling works of art kind of willy-nilly, you know, without the knowledge of and without the consent of the person who's donating the work? And what's more, there was some suggestion that the sales had not necessarily been entirely at arm's length, right? So there was a concern that at least some of the sales had been kind of sweetheart deals where they were selling it. The museum or the curators were sort of encouraging the sale of the works at below market value, perhaps even to people that they knew. And this was a problem that occurred in other contexts as well, most kind of scandalously at the Museum of the American Indian, where there were concerns that the members of the board of directors were actively either buying themselves or selling works from the collection to friends of theirs at prices that were dramatic discount to the fair market value of the works in question. So so there's a real concern about mismanagement and secrecy and lack of transparency and whether or not the activities these organizations were engaging in were appropriate. And sort of out of that scandal, the Various, and there's really quite a few of them, but the two most important ones are the Alliance of American Museums, AAM, and the Association of Art Museum Directors, AAMD, came up with some rules, ethical rules, they style them, that purport to govern how museums should and can sell or deaccession works from the collection. And broadly speaking, the AAM rule is a little bit broader. Right. It says that museums are, according to the AAM, permitted to deaccession works for the purpose of collection management or for the purpose of buying new works. Or, of course, in the case of works that don't have any market value, they can deaccession works that are damaged or, you know, worthless, you know, because they're not going to generate anything. The concern comes in when they're, when the deaccessioning is generating revenue. So the AAM rules say that museums can deaccession works in order to care for the collection or in order to purchase new works for the collection. And the AAMD rules are even narrower. Right. They say the only permissible purpose for which a museum can sell a work of art from the collection of an art museum is in order to purchase a new work of art. And they're not permitted to use the proceeds of a sale for any other purpose. Right. So they can't invest the proceeds. They can't use the proceeds to pay salaries or to pay for upkeep of the building or for the maintenance of the collection. You name it, no matter what else they want to do with it, it's not permitted. According to the AMD, the only permissible purpose is buying new 
works of art. Now, it makes the question complicated, of course, because these are professional organizations to which museum directors belong. You know, their deaccessioning rules are, you know, promulgated by the professional organizations, but they don't have the force of law, right? They're just ethical principles, as it were. So, you know, the AAM and the AMD say, you're not allowed to do this except for this purpose. The law in most cases is kind of agnostic as to whether or not that's true. And what really the sort of the stick that comes along with the ethical rules is essentially the AAM and AMD say, if you know, if you, you museum or you museum director don't observe our rules, we're going to chastise you. We're going to, you know, have a publicity campaign talking about how bad you are and how inappropriate your behavior is. And we're going to do everything in our power to punish you and make your decision a really uncomfortable one, right? So, I mean, as a legal matter, can a museum sell a work from its collection for whatever purpose it wants? Absolutely right? In most cases, with a very, very few limited exceptions, where some states purport to limit by state law, the sale of works of art specifically. As a general rule, museums can buy and sell just like any other charitable organization could. As a practical matter, you know, can they do it? Well, they can only do it against the backdrop of the quote-unquote ethical rules established by these professional organizations. What's the ultimate kind of consequence? Well, you know, it's a prudential decision, I think, on the part of the people who are running and ultimately governing the institution, you know, whether the upside of selling for whatever purpose the, they think it's appropriate to sell for is worth the risk of censure from the professional organizations that are purporting to limit those kinds of sales. What justifications have these professional associations offered for this rule, the slightly looser rule by AAM and the, the tighter rule by the AAMD? What have they offered to justify that as a matter of ethics? And do you find those justifications convincing? Well, so the, the the paradigmatic or the most popular argument that the AM, the AMD, and the sort of like what I like to call them the deaccessioning police like to offer for limiting the deaccessioning of works from museum collections is they say, well, look, museums are charitable organizations, they're public institutions, they hold these kind of vast collections of cultural heritage, and they hold them in what we're going to refer to as the public trust. And so because they hold them in the public trust, it's unethical and inappropriate for them to monetize these collections, right? They have an obligation to the public to maintain the collection, to kind of uh, curate the collection, and to ensure that the collection is preserved for posterity. Now, there's two problems with that. Right. I mean, from a legal perspective, I mean, there is, in fact, something called the public trust doctrine. It's been around since, you know, at least arguably since Roman times. Right. And is certainly, you know, part of the law today. And it's actually kind of reinvigorated in the mid 20th century. But it doesn't apply to museum collections. Right. The public trust doctrine essentially is a legal doctrine that says that the government can't sell off natural resources that are kind of inherently needed by the public in order to, you know, kind of maximize 
their value, right? So the public trust doctrine says things like, you know, the government can't like sell a river or sell all of a river bank so that people can't use the river, right? And maybe even something as far as the government can't like sell off public parks willy-nilly in order just to generate revenue. The problem is that that doesn't translate to the kinds of things we're talking about in the context of museums and art museums, right? I mean, people buy and sell artwork all the time. In fact, we have a vast you know, very lucrative market, we literally refer to as the art market, right? I mean, art is, you know, personal property that's bought and sold constantly. And there's, there's, there's none of these kinds of exclusive, the kinds of reasons you wouldn't want public real estate to be sold in certain circumstances simply don't apply to the kinds of reasons you might be concerned about the purchase or sale of works. Or I mean, are they are, you know, are works of art valuable cultural signifiers? I mean, of course they are, right? But at the end of the day, there are also objects in which we have a robust market and we buy and sell other works of cultural significance all the time. So the, the public trust doctrine as a legal matter is just a really bad fit. Okay, now I acknowledge that in reality, when the people making the kinds of ethical public trust arguments I'm talking about, you know, they're not really talking about the legal public trust doctrine at all. What they're really saying is, these are really important things, and we should take them really seriously, and museums shouldn't be selling off works of art willy-nilly. And, you know, okay, fair enough. That's fine, right? I mean, we shouldn't look at a, the collection of a, of a museum as a piggy bank, right? And I don't think we do, right? These are big you know, charitable organizations with a charitable mission, and they have people running the charitable organization who, at least in theory, are supposed to be sensitive to that charitable mission and really holding the institution to the charitable mission itself. The problem is that when the AAM, the AAMD articulate these rules, and I think Don Zaretsky, lawyer, art lawyer in New York, who runs the Art Law blog, has made this point really forcefully. There's a real tension here. Right. Because they say, oh, you know, this work is so culturally important. It's in the trouble trust and the museums have to own it for the benefit of the public. And they can't just be selling it willy nilly because that would be so inconsistent with the sort of cultural value of the works in question. So it would be so awful and terrible if they were to sell this work in order to generate revenue to keep the museum from going bankrupt. But if they want to sell it to buy something else. Oh, that's fine right? That's totally fine, right? I mean, it's in the public trust that they want to sell it in order to keep the museum in business. But if they want to sell it to buy something else, well, then it's not in the public trust anymore. Then it just doesn't matter. That's totally fine. Then then they're engaging in totally ethical behavior. And that's just just nonsense. I mean, it's just bonkers. It doesn't, it, it's incoherent, right? The idea that somehow the work is like sacrosanct and in the public trust when the museum wants to sell something in order to accomplish an institutionally even really critical goal, right? Like, for example, the AAM and AMD have come out and like literally excoriated museum boards for even considering the idea of selling some artwork in order to do things like, you know, pay down debts in order to prevent the museum from going bankrupt or, or my favorite right? You get a, an institution like, you know, Fisk University, which had a large collection of artwork donated to it. So here you've got an HBCU, right? That has all of this artwork donated to it by a bunch of white 
artist that turns out to be like super duper valuable after a period of time has elapsed. And they say to themselves, well, why don't we sell this stuff in order to be able to provide, you know, scholarship money for underprivileged African-American, you know, first generation college students. And the deaccessioning police come swooping in and say, oh, my God, how unethical the idea of selling artwork for the purpose of subsidizing, you know, disadvantaged minority students. I mean, what a what a, what a travesty. You know, I mean, you know, the idea that this is some sort of unethical behavior just starts to look like a weird, like, comedy, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, th this argument doesn't really work either. Now, I do think that there's, you know, there's one arguably more compelling argument, which been, has been advanced by people like Michael Rushton, right, at IU, where he says, look, right? I mean, the reason to have this rule is sort of like you know, Odysseus binding its hands to the mast, right? It's like, we don't want museum board directors to be like, oh, snap, we did a crummy job at board governance, right? We haven't raised enough money to keep the institution afloat, right? We haven't been ensuring that there's proper financing for the museum. But look, we got this big honeypot and we'll just, you know, we'll just sell off some artwork and that'll solve the problem. And, you know, all of our mismanagement will just be, you know, washed away in the wind. No one will notice because we fixed the problem by selling a bunch of artwork. Right. And the concern there is like, look, we don't want board members to be able to sort of absolve themselves by dipping into the till, as it were. And, you know, and I take the point that like, you know, that's really bad behavior, but the solution seems worse than the problem to me, right? I mean, if the concern is that museum board directors are not properly, you know, providing proper oversight and are violating the duty of care and loyalty to the institution, well, we should be fixing that on the front end, right? To say to the institution, well, you've been mismanaged for so long that you're now in risk of going bankrupt. And our solution to that is going to be to force you into bankruptcy and then let the directors off scot-free, even though you're sitting on these really valuable assets that could save the institution and enable it to sort of reinvigorate itself or reinvent itself with a new board of directors. I mean, that just seems nuts to me. Right? Why do we want to force institutions into bankruptcy merely in order to punish the board of directors? And if what we're, what we're concerned about is the public trust, I mean, isn't the institution part of the public trust as well? I mean, you know, when the Corcoran Institute was forced into bankruptcy, right? I mean, we're talking about like one of like, I think the oldest private art museum in the United States going under simply because the professional organization said you can't sell even one work of art in order to cover the debts of the institution. I mean, that strikes me as a much more profound betrayal of the public trust than the sale of a single work of art. I mean, you know, for want of one sale, an institution was lost, as it were. So you raise the question of corporate governance of museums, which I think is what makes this a particularly interesting paper for this podcast. 
And of course, art museums are generally nonprofit organizations. Sometimes they're owned by a state or locality, perhaps, uh, but or the federal government. But their directors, their trustees, ultimately owe some fiduciary duty as a matter of corporate governance. With that in mind, and apart from whatever ethical codes that professional associations might adhere to, how should museum trustees think about deaccessioning in the context of sound corporate governance? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really that for me, that's really the core question that we should be asking. And I think it's also the right way to ask the question. The overwhelming majority of art museums are private charitable organizations. As you say, some of them are, you know, have governmental affiliations of one kind or another. And there are some private art museums as well, but the overwhelming majority are private charitable organizations, uh, typically organized as uh, nonprofit corporations. So as a consequence, the board member, they typically have self-perpetuating boards and the board members have duties that are more or less equivalent to the duties of the board members of a for-profit corporation. In other words, you know, they got the duty of care to act with, you know, reasonable care with respect to the interests of the organization. And they have a duty of loyalty to put the interests of the organization above their own interests. But they have an additional, or at least they're imputed by, I think, most charity law scholars to have a third duty, which is sort of unique to charitable organizations, which is often referred to as the duty of obedience. And that's the duty to ensure that the organization is governed consistent with the charitable purpose of the organization, right? So unlike for-profit organizations, for-profit corporations, which typically have the quote-unquote purpose of basically making money, right? You know, doing whatever is legal in order to generate value for shareholders, right? There are no shareholders of a charitable organization and charitable organizations, while the charitable purposes clause in the certificate organization is often written very broadly, they have a meaningful kind of more specific charitable purpose baked into the nature of the organization itself. And so the directors of the organization are obligated to think about that charitable purpose and why that charitable organization exists. And I think that in a lot of respects, that's even kind of a higher duty than the duties of care and loyalty because it goes to the reason the organization exists in the first place. And, you know, and my feeling is that like, look, at the end of the day, the duty of the directors of a charitable art museum has to be to preserve that institution insofar as it still has value to offer to the public. And it strikes me as a dereliction of the duty of obedience to allow the organization to go bankrupt or to dissolve when it could be saved insofar as the preservation of the organization still has some kind of point. Now, I totally acknowledge, right, that there might be cases where charities have sort of like lost their purpose, right? You know, they no longer, a particular museum may not, may no longer have a collection that anyone's interested in. It may not be, you know, able to actually accomplish its charitable purpose anymore. Well, I mean, in those circumstances, I think it's totally legitimate for a board of directors to say obedience to the charitable purpose of the organization obligates us to wind up the organization and pass on the assets to another organization that can use them more effectively in the public interest. But in many cases, the institution still has a real purpose and there actually is something valuable 
it can do. And in those cases, I think the board of directors actually has a fiduciary obligation to do whatever it takes to preserve the organization for another day, even if that means violating the so-called ethical rules of these professional organizations and deaccessioning works from the collection in order to provide the capital necessary to keep the organization afloat. So, I mean, it really is, as you say, like it's an interesting aspect of kind of corporate governance in a nonprofit corporation context where the unique, as I see it, kind of obligations and fiduciary duties of uh, the board members of charitable organizations, you know, really require them, in my opinion, to take on a kind of responsibility to the institution, to the organization, and to the sort of higher purposes of the organization, irrespective of you know, what kind of costs that might impose on them personally and socially in relation to other people who sort of look down their nose on them to, for making these kinds of decisions. In other words, it's an obligation to make the hard choices that are uncomfortable rather than sort of, you know, put on the mantle of, well, I'm making the ethical choice and not breaking up the collection and too bad, so sad that the institution is going to fold. It's not my problem. So the deaccessioning rules that have been put forward by these professional associations do put directors in a position where they might have to make some uncomfortable choices. Of course, in corporate governance, conflicts are always a concern, and mitigating and managing those conflicts is always a project of corporate governance. You hint a little bit in the paper, there might be some explanations for the deaccessioning rules that might sound in the potential for conflicts, if not literal legal conflicts, then the appearance of them. Could you maybe discuss that possibility a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's no secret. There's a lot of money sloshing around in the art world and that, you know, as markets go, the art world or the art market is probably one of the most corrupt markets there is, right? I mean, everything's done on a handshake deal. The amount of grift is... Mind-boggling, and the amount of money at stake is truly stupendous. And it's like you know, it's like particular objects where it's hundreds of millions. You know, like people are buying and selling for hundreds of millions of dollars with you know no meaningful oversight. You know, I, I mean, there's a lot of room for potential issues, including conflicts of interest. And there's a curious feature, right, of these deaccessioning rules, specifically the deaccessioning rules promulgated by the AAMD, right? So just to remind listeners, right, the AAMD says art museums are not permitted to deaccession works of art from their collections for any purpose other than purchasing new works of art. Well, what's the practical consequence of that particular rule, right? It's to say that to the extent that works of art in the art market are increasing in value. In other words, to the extent that there are capital gains in the art market, art museums, i.e. charitable organizations, are not permitted to take those capital gains out of the market. They have to leave them there, right? Sure, they can sell a work into the market, but they can only sell a work into the market for the purpose of buying another work from the market. In other words, they have to leave the capital gains in the market. Right. Well, what does that mean as a practical consequence? It means the only people permitted to take capital gains out of the art market are private collectors. I mean, essentially what the AAMD rule, literally what the AAMD rule is saying is that 
all of the capital gains in the art market have to be reserved to private actors in the art market and museums. Charitable organizations are not permitted to partake in this capital gains. I find that, you know, curious, shall we say, curious that that rule was the rule that they just so happened to settle upon because it seems so remarkably convenient for the people who maybe say like tend to sit on the boards of the art museums and maybe say the people who tend to donate art and money to the art museums, you know, and maybe the people who see all kinds of reasons why art museums are really convenient when it comes to doing all kinds of financial transactions that they want to have taken place in the art market, right? Including ways of like, you know, mitigating risk and figuring out how to bolster the value of the works they're investing in. I mean, you know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how this is sort of consistent with a lot of how the art market uh, ultimately works. Brent, what key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation and from your article? One big one for me is just thinking a little bit harder about charitable governance and how charitable organizations work. So, you know, I've been interested in in charity law and charity governance for a long time. And, you know, I think we have a tendency or there is a tendency in business law and corporate law scholarship to think primarily about for-profit corporations and LLCs and not really to take so seriously the way that charitable organizations organizations are governed and how they're different from for-profit corporations and sort of how we might think about that sector as having kind of unique factors that are worth taking into account. In addition, you know, I'm interested in the role of professional organizations, specifically in relation to markets and, and, you know, and what we mean when we talk about ethics, right? Because, you know, call me cynical, but anytime someone uses the word ethics, I have an instant tendency to just assume they're full of shit. Right. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, ethics is usually a word that people mean when they don't have a real argument and they want a paper over something uncomfortable or awkward that they don't want you to be looking at. Right. And, and, and that's honestly what I really see going on in a lot of these circumstances. It's a lot of people like doing a lot of hand waving to pretend that they're engaged in some sort of pure as a different snow, you know, super rarefied type activity when what's really going on is ultimately market management. Uh, of one kind or another, you know, and, and I think really kind of asking people to, to sit down and say, you know, what ultimately do we want? What values do we want to promote? Is it more important? Is it really more important to us to say that selling artwork in order to generate a profit is bad? Or is it really more important to us to save these institutions? And how should we think about sort of the values that are at stake in these contexts, right? I mean, to the extent we think that art is something important and valuable and culturally significant, you know, what kind of impact should that have on the way we think about the institutions that preserve, exhibit, and explain that are run? Our guest today has been Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. We've discussed his article, Against Deaccessioning Rules, which is forthcoming in the Creighton Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Brian, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. This is a lot of fun. I always love talking about deaccessioning.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.